0: you're listening to highlights from the creative processes interview with executive consultant and author anne hyatt this podcast is supported by the jan michelsky foundation
1: i really look for who is anticipating the greater needs of society i'm really concerned of the effects of modern technology on democracy for example, and so I I want to partner with CEOs who are really thinking about the future and the implications. Not only what can we do with technology, but what should we be doing with technology?
0: And also to an extent, if I may say, a bit of deceleration.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important part, taking a step back. For example, when I was at Google and we realized that artificial intelligence was going to become core to every single product built, Google looked at acquiring artificial intelligence companies and they chose a company based in London called DeepMind, and a big selling point, while the technology is stellar and there were a lot of great companies they could have acquired, they chose DeepMind because at the time, 30% of their employees were ethicists. They not only had the engineers who were at the cutting edge of something that was not yet discussed over dinner tables, But they had people in those rooms as they were developing the technologies of the future asking, what should we be doing with this technology, realizing that it was going to become pervasive in every single thing we do. Most of us don't think we're experiencing AI on a daily basis, but I promise you've interacted with it at least 20 times already today. It's just so ingrained in the back end of, of everything we're using in technology. So I think that's where I come from. That's the background of really wanting to value not only what can we do, but what should we be doing?
0: You're right there. Of course, we don't realize the many ways that AI is influencing us. And I was wondering, you know, working within the fast-paced tech sector, also just on a work-life balance, you know, how do you mm. maintain serenity? Have you noticed your, your brain changing influenced by technology?
1: Oh my God, I am currently obsessed with this. I could talk to you for hours. About this. There's an incredible podcast by a PhD researcher, a neurologist based in Stanford. It's called the Huberman Podcast. And I am obsessed with these studies of how interacting with technology literally changes the dopamine release in our brains and the ripple effect of behaviors that come when you get these dopamine hits. It's something to be taken very, very, very seriously, especially in evolving minds, that's why we see young teenagers having very extreme effects from this addiction that they have at very young ages, to technology because it's designed that way. And I take responsibility in this. YouTube is as big of a problem as Instagram or these other, every time you get a like or a view or something, you get this dopamine released in your brain that really changes your behaviors. And that's why we're seeing a lot of very, very serious mental health issues in young people. We're seeing suicides of 12 year olds at astronomical unprecedented rates. And it's very much tied to the only connections and the only positive reinforcements they're getting socially are online now where I hung out at the mall. I'm old enough that I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have my first email account until I was the first year of university. I'm so glad that my adolescence was spent offline. My baby sister, I'm the oldest of seven, and she's the youngest. And our lives, it's so fascinating for me to watch her social world evolves. She has all kinds of challenges that I never had to face at her age. And I, they're hard enough for me, you know, in my mid-40s, let alone as, as a young person who doesn't have a sure self-identity established yet.
0: We were discussing with a lot of neuroscientists about that, Erika Miller as well at MIT. And so you obviously have in place those strategies for limiting, your, I don't know, you use certain things to, to limit, but for young people, what are some things that you would recommend for them? I'm so glad
1: that you asked this question about work-life balance and being very thoughtful about the way you consume data online or what apps we're using or who we're following. I encourage everybody to regularly do spring cleaning of who you're following. If you look at someone's feed and it makes you feel less than or excluded, unfollow, not worth it. But you wanna be following people who are enriching your experience, who make you believe in yourself or inspire you or educate you. And so I try, after uh, looking at the data of how your brain responds with dopamine release to using apps, I have a rule. I don't do social media in the morning. I used to wake up to social media. I would just do the scroll and see what everyone's up to. And that's actually the worst way you can start your day. So I start with a workout outside with some sunshine. That's so good for your mental health. And for me, that's non-negotiable. I made a huge mistake. If you read my book, you will see what huge mistakes I made around not having any semblance of work-life balance early in my career. Now, there were ways I counterbalanced that, which we can get into, but I didn't do a great job of that. So mid- my career at Google, I set some parameters, some non-negotiables. And the most important one was between 7 and 8 a.m. every single day, I was going to be working out and I was going to be outside and I did not have my phone. Now that might sound like nothing, but in those early years, this is early 2000s at Google, that was unheard of. So setting some parameters. Now that's something that I I continue. But the way I set some balance, even while I was working regularly 18-hour days, was something that I think everyone can adopt. I was very, very clear with myself of three things. One is I wanted to work for leaders that I wanted to become like, not that I just liked, I enjoyed, but I want to become like because we become the average of the five people we spend most of the time with. So I sought out people who I wanted to start emulating. Second was it was very clear to me and I made it clear to my managers, what did I wanna learn from that opportunity? If I was gonna spend 18 hours a day, give, give, giving a lot to my job, I wanted to be really clear what I wanted in return. For me, that was often like, what did I want to learn? What expertise did I want to become known for? What areas of growth did it offer me? How, what skills was I adding to uh, my arsenal? And then three was I wanted to consistently disrupt myself. I never wanted to live too firmly in my comfort zone. And that's a big concept that I go into detail in my book, Bet on Yourself, was being proactively disruptive of your own self, because otherwise, you know, if, as everyone has learned in the pandemic, the world kind of does it for you, unless you choose what your future battles are going to be. So even while I didn't feel like I had the ability to create what I would call work-life balance in those early years of tech, that was what fueled me and prevented my burnout. Whereas a lot of my colleagues did burn out because of that exchange of I'm going to give this and I'm going to seek out this in return was very clear for me, even at the earliest stages of my career.
0: And you speak about disruption, and I know you were born in Air Force Base and yeah. you had a large family. So how do you feel that prepared you?
1: I jokingly, but it's really true. I jokingly often say that being the oldest of seven kids in an Air Force family, it created my natural bossiness and organizational skills from a very young age. Because if you wanted to get anything done, you had to do it yourself. When you're constantly uprooted, you know, I went to a different kindergarten, first grade, and second grade, completely different states we moved a lot and you, you do learn to be self-reliant. And I was a naturally very timid person. Like my nature is one of perfectionist, like in every negative association with that word, I held myself back out of fear of looking stupid or not doing something perfectly, but the military life and having a big family and then getting into tech so early in my career nurtured me out of my nature and allowed me to experiment and realize that I could shift my perception. One of the most important books I read in my entire life was written by Carol Dweck. She's also at Stanford and her book is called Mindset. And she describes, even if you only read the introduction, it is life-changing, at least it was for me, because it moved me from what she describes two mindsets. One is performance mindset and the other is learning mindset. My nature is performance mindset where I wanna do a 10 out of 10, every single time. And if I can't get a 10 out of 10, I don't want to start it because that just you know gives me a bad uh, track record. But her book inspired me to shift into a learning mindset. And this is where um, people are really successful in tech. If you have a learning mindset, that means if I don't get a 10 out of 10 this time, I'm going to learn something so that next time I try it, I'll get better. So the first time I try something, it's a two out of 10. I believe in myself that I will then improve and uh, use those lessons and I will get a four out of 10 and until eventually I, I can become better. And so not doing something perfectly instead of being paralyzing for me, became something that was a learning experience that was an investment in my future. And that was really pervasive in tech as well.
0: Yeah, and I think you need to have that balance though of learning and performance from a business
1: yeah. mindset. What's the bottom line? What's it gonna cost me? when am I gonna turn a profit on this as well? So thinking that the long-term results and uh, from a personal thing, it's lovely, yeah. and that's I love having that learning experience, but also part of me is always asking, you know, so what 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 what's the value? Justin, I'm so glad you brought that up because there's a really important way of measuring progress, especially when you're trying to design something unknown. And that's why so many tech companies use different metrics. So everyone is familiar with KPIs. These are the things that this is how you earn your your chair. This is how you earn your salary. You must hit 10 out of 10 that's not negotiable. But then what tech uses is what we call OKRs, objectives and key results. And objectives are that part that you can't control. So a lot of companies think they're using OKRs, but most of them, at least if my clients are any um, indicator, they're not doing it correctly. They actually conflate them with KPIs and then your team gets really confused because you can't be incentivizing something that's outside of your control, but you need that if you're going to be innovative. And the best way I explain the difference between a KPI and an OKR is it's an oversimplification, but KPIs are within your control to do and OKRs are these objectives that are outside your control. For example, I just wrote my first book. I would love for it to be a bestseller. So how am I gonna measure that? I could choose to want to be a New York Times bestseller and that list necessarily correlated to number of book sales. It's how important is it in the cultural conversation at the moment? Or I can measure it through Wall Street Journal bestseller list, and that's literally just by the numbers. So let's say I set a target for myself to become a Wall Street Journal (laughs) bestseller. What I control is I can show up every day and write X number of pages. I can hit my deliverables. I can get it published. I can go on a million podcasts and talk about it and show up where I think my readers are. That's all within my control. But I can't control how many people buy it, how many lists I get on, if it's a cultural moment. So that's an objective. So I have specific things that I'm showing up to do every day that are really hard. And I've never done before. And I might probably fail at the first time I try, but my objective is what keeps me coming back and coming back. So we have these data driven things. I can see the sales correlated to how I'm showing up in the world. But that end result is outside of my control. I think it's an oversimplification, but it's a nice illustration of the difference between the two concepts.
0: In terms of those that you've worked with, how did they address those two concepts in their leadership styles? Jeff Bezos, Eric Schmidt, Marissa Maya? I mean,
1: I am fully appreciating only now how they did it at an Olympic level. Most executives have a fairly hard time They have very, very clear in their mind where they're going. They have this clear North star. They know what their priorities are and the mark they're trying to put in the world. They communicate that directly to their leadership team. And then that's where the trickle down effect usually gets very inconsistent. So what you really need to do with KPIs and OKRs is make it pervasive throughout the culture where everyone has a bias for action, where you're just doing the right things rather than pausing for permission at every small thing because you know exactly where we're going and and that your bets that you're making are in alignment with that. And then second is you want your leadership team and every level of the company all the way down to your interns, your receptionists to feel a sense of ownership, to understand exactly what part of that mission is theirs and to feel like if I don't show up today, I understand how that's going to affect the whole of the team. And when you feel that direct alignment with whatever your responsibilities are, no matter how senior or junior you are in the company, that's really motivating. And that's when you can keep your employees sprinting often, which is what scale-ups always feel like. You're constantly sprinting, sprinting, sprinting a marathon. That's how you prevent burnout also, is feeling that sense of control and ownership and that you're part of that problem-solving process. when. What's really demotivating and leads to almost instant burnout is if your job starts to feel like a checklist that is dictated by someone else that consistently ends up in burnout. And I find a lot of executives unintentionally, while they're trying to operationalize and streamline their businesses for efficiencies, end up boiling it down to a checklist and that's really demotivating and people start to burn out then.
0: What are your thoughts really on
1: globalization, the next chapter, and how we kind of prepare for this next chapter? One of the things that worries me the most is that we have limited representation in the participation at that level. I am very concerned that the future seems to be consolidated among the 10 wealthiest, most powerful people in the world who are all white guys. And they're great. I know most of them personally, like I have mad respect for them, but it's really concerning when a private individual can buy Twitter. It's very concerning When a billionaire can own one of the most important news organizations in the United States. When Jeff bought the Washington Post, at first I was very excited about it because we all know that journalism and journalistic integrity is an essential part of modern democracy. And that was very much threatened and dismantled by technology because their revenue structure was destroyed with the internet. So they had to reinvent themselves. So at first, when he bought it, I thought, oh, good, he's going to give them new lifeblood. And now I'm like, oh no. (laughs) Like when we have major billionaires controlling the dialogue, the discussions, the flow of information, whether that's Facebook or Twitter or news organizations, that's really concerning. So my major deliverable and really the motivation behind writing bet on yourself was to democratize success, democratize entrepreneurism, and to wake up inside all of us realizing that whether you're an entrepreneur working in another company, or if you're an a more traditional quote-unquote entrepreneur. It doesn't have to be in a garage or getting funding from traditional VC companies. I wanted to wake that up in as many minds as possible that we can make a huge difference. No matter your expertise, your industry, your risk tolerance, there are ways that we can all participate in this. And what we need most, especially now when like core algorithms of artificial intelligence are being written, is more participation from more perspectives, whether that's cultural, you know, every possible definition of diversity, I want more people participating. Because what concerns me most about globalization is it's being controlled by about 10 people.
0: We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.